0: But the truth is, is that not one person that I've ever sat with um, or in my own experience planned on becoming a full blown addict alcoholic. It doesn't work that way. For the most part, addicts and alcoholics are really a group of sensitive people who didn't necessarily have the best coping skills to handle the world. And you know, they feel things deeply and they have a lot of heart. And, you know, sometimes needed a little bit of help to, to deal with the ups and downs, disappointments and traumas of living. Most addicts and alcoholics that I work with, they want to be better. they want to change. They are basically not the same people, clean and sober as they were when they had the chemicals in their system. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm
1: your host, Lindsay Nobles.
2: And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. All right, friends, today's episode is tackling the topic of recovery, addiction, and medicators. We brought on therapist and on-site guide Amanda Alola to help us understand this topic a little bit more. You don't have to be in active recovery, active addiction, or love someone who's in addiction to benefit from this episode. What I really love is the normalizing and graceful view that she brings to this topic. Because the reality is that all of us medicate with something. We all use external things to turn down internal noise, struggle, pain, and feelings. For some of us, we might medicate with socially acceptable or even rewarded behaviors like overperforming at work. Or maybe we've gotten really good at using exercise and serving others to turn down the noise when we're feeling uncomfortable. And for others, this medicating behaviors move beyond coping into addiction in the form of shopping, sex, alcohol, or drugs, fill in the blank. But I was so encouraged by this conversation surrounding a topic that I think a lot of us find intimidating, daunting, or maybe even a little bit scary. In this interview, Amanda helps us understand medicators, their role in our lives, and also dives into the warning signs we might miss when it comes to addiction. She talks a lot about recovery and her own personal journey and the work that she's done for over 20 years with families, individuals, and couples. One of my favorite parts is when she dives into how to support and address troubling behaviors with the people that we love who might be struggling with addiction. Amanda's perspective on this topic is informative, direct, kind, and compassionate, and I really think you're going to love it. What I hope you take away today is a little bit more understanding, a little bit of empathy for yourself and the people you love. If you or someone that you love is struggling with an addiction today, there is hope. If you head to today's show notes, you'll find several resources that we think may be helpful for you along your journey. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Um, We are so excited to have you here. And I think what we continue to love on some of these episodes with our guides is just to introduce our audience to the beautiful agents of healing that um, come and do our workshops and our online programs and our intensives and just the incredible clinicians that we get to um, be with.
0: So thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking. Amanda, how long have you been with Onsite? I'm just curious. Good question. So I was looking back, actually, at my stuff to to kind of get myself the same answer. I think that I went to my first training in 2015. Okay. And then went through every training possible that I could that was offered. Um, And you know, I wasn't one of the people, you know, that I met at my first training that said, well, I'm here because I want to be evaluated and I want to be trained to work at on-site. Yeah. And I didn't think that that was, you know, <laughs> I didn't know the process. I, I didn't know anything. I didn't know that's what it was about sometimes. So during the process, I remember getting to uh, my training with Mary Bellafato. And thinking, wow, this really clicks for me. Mm-hmm. And you know, asking her at at one of the breaks, like, do you think that I should do this? And she said, absolutely. <laughs> you know, you you know the work. Mm. So that's when I decided I I wanted to be you know involved in any way that I could. So I think that I started as an actual employee in 2017. So that's a, a long answer to a short question.
1: Oh wow, yeah. You've been on this for many seasons then. That's cool to see. You've probably seen some
0: iterations of on-site. I have. I have. I um, find myself fortunate to have seen it all. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that watching some of the growth has been really cool and it's been cool to see all of the progress, uh, and the growth and, you know, growth that came out of really, really awful circumstances as well, Mm -hmm. um, with COVID and and watching, you know, on-site diversify into online programming. That's all been really cool. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. I think it's been such a a cool thing, even in my short time to see those iterations and what
0: programs do you kind of do the most? Typically, I'm doing intensives. Mm -hmm. I just recently started private practice. I've been working in the substance abuse treatment industry for the last about 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I found that after I did my first few programs, the LCPs that it was just like a little too much with working full time yeah. in that venue. So now I'm excited. I'm signed up to do some LCPs and HTPs this year. So the Living Center and the Healing Trauma Programs.
2: Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. I'm so excited for you
0: to get to do that. Me too. And I'll have some intensives thrown in as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear, so you've been on site since 2017 as one of our adjunct guides, but how did you get into the helping profession and um, working with people with addiction uh, in the very first place? Take me back there.
0: (laughs) Well, I remember going to a therapist myself and thinking that, and this was probably in my early, very early 20s, thinking this is something that I'd be interested in doing. And, you know, I I liked her a lot. And I I think she was helpful for me at that particular time in life. And I thought, I'm going to go to school and, and see what this is all about. So I went to school for social work. As far as being drawn to addictions, you know, what I didn't know then that I know now is, you know, I was drawn to trying to figure out what was going on with myself. I was... Not in recovery when I started school, and I have been now for almost 18 years. and um, you know I, that field itself it's it's difficult, but it's the most rewarding thing I, I think that I could have done with with my career. there's There's some hard, hard, painful losses, but when we see the gains, it's it's nothing like it.
2: We've heard people from kind of get there by different ways, and you went by the social work way. How does your training as a social worker first really inform the work that you do then, um, maybe differently than if you had gone a different track or a different understanding?
0: I think for me, I was taught to look at things not just from the perspective of the pathology, Mm. Um, I, I was really taught to look at the person in the environment. Mm. Um, and that's like the, you know, the foundation of social work is, okay, maybe this person who's, you know, showing up or presenting with these problems, maybe they're not just a problem, Mm. right? Maybe Mm. some problems happened around them or they are happening or they happen to them.
2: Yeah. I think that goes a lot into, um, the way that we understand a lot of the work that we do at Onsite is that there's a reason for everything you're doing um, and the way that you're medicating Absolutely. or the ways that you're leaning into, like they were serving a purpose for a while.
0: And I, I love that. Me too. And I, I remember, you know, the the one of, one of my mentors talking about, you know, those being signs of resilience, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously they end up no longer serving us at a certain point but I can't tell you how many times a client has said to me, I would have killed myself if it wasn't for my medicator.
1: Mm. Mm. So
0: I can have some real empathy and and compassion for that and realize what grief comes along with giving up the medicator because it's the thing that got you through.
1: Mm. Um, I'd love to know, uh, you mentioned that you started studying social work and didn't realize necessarily that you had an addiction and that you then stepped into that work. But what in your own process of therapy or in studying this type of work kind of led you to an awakening of your own um, experience? And then what pushed you from awakening to that to seeking help?
0: Well, I didn't say that I didn't know there weren't problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said I wasn't in recovery. Yeah. Um so, you know, I uh, I'll tell a little bit. I had a car accident uh when I was really young, really really early 20s and you know that there was some alcohol involved in that car accident. And, you know, that was a big shame for me and for my family for for a really long time. And at this point, having come to the other side and achieved, you know, long-term sobriety, I can say that now. But it devastated my life. It devastated my family's life. I became permanently disabled after that. um, I was, you know, initially diagnosed as permanently paraplegic and wheelchair bound. Wow. And for some reason, you know, most likely a spiritual one, I didn't, I, I just showed up to the to the gym. I was I was gifted the use of my legs and, and my lower body again. Wow, um, mm. It's not perfect. And I do need some help. But we kind of defy the odds. So I absolutely knew substances were a problem. I did not know about recovery. Hmm. Mm. And um, going through one of my internships, and this is probably taboo to say, but going through one of my internships, I, I learned what recovery was and even felt admiration and kind of a sense of like, okay, these people, all of these people here, because it was in treatment, mm-hmm. all of yes. these people are happy And they're functional and they're living life and they're doing it sober and clean. Mm -hmm. Like I can probably, I I can do that. Mm -hmm. And from then on, it was, you know, a series of steps to get to, you know, the point of permanent sobriety. But I got there. Yeah.
2: That's incredible. I think, um, thank you for sharing that with us. And I wonder what it looked like for you to make that transition from, this was a really like, place of pain and a place of shame for me to, I can say that in, with 18 years of sobriety and say, yes, this was a problem, but it's now, it doesn't define me. And so what did that transition look like walking through recovery? Because I think you had a really even, a really graceful lens of it was doing something and you have uh, compassion mm-hmm. for the client you work with. And I think that must come from your mm-hmm. own story.
0: Sure. Sure. And <sighs> I, I think some of the process is, you know, getting vulnerable about that and, you know, the people that, you know, I did start to let in along the way to the process that, that I was undergoing or even sharing after I was years in that I was in recovery, that much to my shock and, and surprise, people were admirable. People would tell me how much they respected it and how strong I was, versus, you know, this old script or or yeah. this younger part of me who still felt that shame and who still said, Oh, but that was that was terrible and mm. you know, you're you're a bad person, you know, because of all that. So I think that was a piece of it, and then really starting to do more internal work on, you know, rescuing those parts and pieces of me that believed all those things that that weren't real, um, that it was something to be ashamed of, that I was defective, that I was never going to be like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And those things just, (laughs) I I know now they're not true. I'm not going to say on some days people don't go into those things or I don't go into self-doubt, but overwhelmingly so. Sobriety was the container that allowed me to do the work Mm. that that I needed to do to be able to, you know, establish that accurate sense of self-worth and self.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: What I hear
1: um, you saying is, I think um, the process of recovery is so multifaceted and so... um, much about recovering ourselves and not just recovering from an a, a medicator or an act of doing something. I think a lot of times people that are removed from addiction or substance world can think like it's just about getting clean. And Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to hear you speak to more of your recovery journey. And I love how you've alluded to, like you had to go back and rewrite some narratives or you had to go back and tend to those childhood parts. Um, Mm -hmm. Speak to the kind of depth of the recovery process past sobriety, which is a huge part of it, obviously. Um, But Mm -hmm. what else is the recovery process look like for you?
0: You know, obviously, the, the chemical sobriety is, is you know, like you said, the, the necessary foundation, right? But sobriety, for me, goes beyond that, in that this is about spirituality. And I don't mean necessarily just about higher power. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, that's necessary. But also, um, how does my spirit interact with yours? Mm. How does my spirit interact with my, you know, higher power and people around me? And that's really about, am I living the kind of principles in my life that I can feel good about? Am I living with integrity? Mm -hmm. Am I being somebody and living as somebody that I can feel proud of? Mm -hmm. Most of the time, I can say yes to that. And even when I say no on that particular day, I've got a fix for that too. Yeah, I just go... I just go talk it out, or mm-hmm. you know, make it right. Yeah. Um, so I'm not saying the standard is perfection, but it, it's it's really cool to be able to you know look at my actions of today and and you know my 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 past um, for the most part for you know almost two decades and and be able to say I'm proud of that person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's beautiful.
1: Yeah. I yeah. I think recovery has so much to teach us all, um, and I think a lot of people don't engage with the process of recovery if they're not in active addiction um, or have mm-hmm. a loved one that is. And mm-hmm. since working on Onsite, I've really learned a lot about just learning from the process of recovery and what we all can Mm -hmm. benefit from that. And I Mm -hmm. wonder if um, for people who are listening who maybe could potentially tune out this conversation because they aren't um, actively abusing a substance or something of that nature or don't have a Mm -hmm. loved one who is, what does recovery have to teach us all about our own healing process?
0: That there is the possibility of redemption, so to speak, Mm. In that, you know, I can have things that I don't like about myself. I can have behavior patterns or self-limiting beliefs that, that get me in trouble or that damage my relationships with myself or, or others. The good news is, is I can sit down and go through a pretty simple, you know, list of, of, of tasks, so mm-hmm. to speak, and figure out what they are and what I want to do with them, and then go talk to the people, you know, Mm -hmm. that they have harmed. Mm -hmm. So I get to, you know, really try and make things right with people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, in addition to being transparent about it, um, that is the biggest kind of shame buster Hmm. I, I think just yeah. being able to go talk about that thing, so it doesn't hang over my head, and I don't feel that weird kind of like, right. oh God, mm-hmm. am I going to run into that point? What, what if <laughs> I run it? What am I? I you know like being mortified? Defi- no, I, I don't have to do that. Yeah, I don't have to do that. So there's a simple design mm-hmm. that that's really clearly you know written out. That's the first piece of it. Mm. What
1: I hear there is like a lot of ownership and a lot of agency in our own healing. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. The, the accountability has to be there, you know, mm-hmm. for, for any type of change to occur. If I can, you know, identify that I can jump out of, you know, the, that victim ego space and really say, all right, well, this thing might've happened, but this is what I can do about it and what I can't. As I'm hearing you say
2: that, I think there's so much beauty And having the type of relationships that I would make up that are built through recovery and that I found even in some of my own recovery work from people-pleasing and codependency is that you foster relationships where that becomes symbiotic, where if I go to you and say, hey, I feel a little off with this interaction, or I felt like there's just a permission to call things out differently, Mm -hmm. to call out, hey, this feels awkward between us, instead of festering and letting it get bigger than it actually is, which is my M.O., (laughs) I feel comfortable to go and say, hey, can you hold space about this? And maybe it's something that didn't even cross your mind, but we can now talk about it. And I can make sure that we're okay. Or I can say, hey, I actually want to do a redo. Mm -hmm. The way that I responded in this situation, I think it leaves so much room for that symbiotic relationship back and forth. And then people feel the permission to approach me in that. Like, I just have Mm -hmm. found so much beauty in that. And when you were saying, I don't, I can do something about it. I don't have to be trapped in these patterns. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's so much freedom and so much grace. Um, mm-hmm. I think being at Onsite has really changed my filter and the way that I approach relationships. And I think it's because we are in an environment where people <laughs> are taking people are those principles of you. recovery. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think you know the honesty that you have to have with yourself to be able to. <sighs> Identify that really is the necessary foundation to go be honest, you know, with Mm -hmm. other people, and Mm -hmm. you know, speak what's really going on for you. I might be too honest sometimes, um, (laughs) just in my (laughs) feedback. (laughs) Um, But I'm the person that I would rather name it, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you know, people, clients talk to me all the time about, well, what am I supposed to say? Yeah. Well, you're supposed to stay what's in your head, and and you're supposed to name it. And, you know, if somebody doesn't respond to that, like we, we can, we can handle that too. Mm -hmm. We can figure out what we're responsible for and what we're not.
1: Yeah. I love that. Uh Um, speaking, when you said talking about naming things, there's obviously speaking truth to other people and then speaking truth to ourselves. And Mm -hmm. earlier when you mentioned, um, You were using the word medicator, and I think for a lot of people, maybe they aren't super familiar with that word or understand it in the broad scope of their own experience. And Mm -hmm. I think we often think of medicators as a coping or we could say coping devices or things like that Mm -hmm. um, as an extreme thing that could turn unhealthy, like uh, alcohol abuse or drug abuse. Um, Mm -hmm. But my time at Onsite has really taught me a lot about my own medicators and how mine Mm -hmm. are easier to ignore, um, but doesn't mean I'm not using them and abusing them in the same ways. So for me, something like workaholism and people pleasing and all sorts of things like that. So I was wondering if you could speak to medicators. What is a medicator? How do people use them? And when does it turn from... A healthy coping mechanism to when should we pay attention to it as a warning sign that maybe we're using it in a way that's unhealthy for us?
0: I I think for me, the easiest way to explain a medicator is anything that's going to change the way that I feel Hmm. and, you know, get me outside of my original feeling or or what was going on for me. Hmm. Um, So you're right. That can be something as widely respected as working. Sure you know, which everyone's going to pat you on the back for. Mm -hmm. Um, That can be, you know, being a quote unquote people pleaser, that can just look like being a nice lady. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, but people don't know the private struggle that's going on. Or exercise. I Mm. mean, you get praised, you know, all day long for exercising. But then the people who are using that as something to avoid their feelings or change their feelings, not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, obviously, like you said, there are more easily recognizable things using substances, uh, the process, addictions, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. the spending, shopping, hoarding, sex, kind of stuff. But it's it's not always as easily identifiable as that. There can be, you know, like you mentioned, the codependency mm-hmm. wheel of, of behaviors, and, and also really like relationships in general yeah. are medicators mm-hmm. for people. I could go on and on with this. Yeah. I think that, you know, a good rule of thumb is when this thing is no longer helping you and it's interfering with you being able to function at as high of a level as you would like, mm-hmm. then it's it's a warning red flag. Mm. Um, you know, I... I if if I'm a person who can have a glass or, you know, a glass of wine at night, and, you know, maybe I start having two, and I start waking up with a headache, and maybe I start having three glasses, and then I'm, you know, really sick and hungover and can't go to work, then we've got a red flag. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, having a glass of wine in the evening for a lot of people is, is a normal coping skill and not harmful to them.
1: mm mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really helpful normalizing definition, which I think invites us yeah. all to evaluate. What are we using? Mm-hmm. How are we using it? Uh, mm-hmm. Societally, what's praised? What's normal? What from mm-hmm. our families and our culture was seen mm-hmm. as normal? Mm-hmm. Um, I think mm-hmm. there's so many factors that lead us to use different experiences. Um, sure. And it's easy to overlook them. So that's a helpful definition for me.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was a really helpful definition when I started learning about that. Like in my um, Living Center program, we talked about that. But so much, like you were saying, Hannah, of uh, the ways that I medicate are the ways that I turned on the volume in my life to not pay attention to myself are the ones mm-hmm. that are rewarded. It's mm-hmm. like people really love when I'm busy. Like I can get <laughs> more done. I am a producer and that is rewarded. And so I think it served a dual a dual purpose for me because it was one, turning down the noise, but it was also getting me affirmation and praise in areas that I was seeking it and I was seeking external validation and not being right internally. And so mm-hmm. I love that really beautiful definition and that invitation to say, okay, where is this on the spectrum? Mm-hmm. And I also would love for you to speak at, okay, so if I have to have self-awareness and let's say I do identify, what what do I do next? What do I do with that information when I think something that I thought was harmless or maybe I've had um, a paradigm shift I thought that that was just normal. What do I do next? What's the next step that someone could take in that self-awareness process?
0: Well, I, I think talking to a therapist is always a good key. Um, but I think there's also a number of online platforms that, you know, I won't plug a particular thing or the other that can help people get information about any type of medicator kind of behavior that they feel might be coming a problem. Now, I will say in my experience and in my particular specialty, like that Mm -hmm. is not the norm that people themselves say this is an issue. Um, That was going to be my second question. (laughs) (laughs) At least the first time around anyway. um, Most of the time, it's kind of a kicking and screaming thing. um, Unless somebody is just particularly, you know, beaten down. But most of the time when people first arrive, they're, they're not. And mm-hmm. it, it usually will be, you know, a loved one, a family member, a spouse, a boss, somebody saying, okay, have you noticed that this is an issue? And the problem is, is that, you know, addiction hijacks our defense mechanisms. Mm. So most of the time people are going to reply, really? <laughs> I hadn't noticed. I don't know what
2: you're talking about.
0: Right, right. How do we do that well as a concerned
2: loved one? Or as someone who, let's say someone in our life is exhibiting these behaviors, how do you approach someone well? How do you help them find the help that they need? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I have seen it go a couple of different ways in my own personal experience, but also knowing that you can't take someone to do the work that they have to do for themselves. What does that look like? What have you seen from your experience?
0: I think family members appealing from the perspective of, little judgment or no judgment full support you know emotional support we we are going to help you get well perspective versus and, and that's a difficult thing to do most of the time by the time people say something they are already too frustrated to be in that non judgmental place because addiction you know it's not quiet it disrupts everything so In the beginning, people overlook things, they don't want to um, cause conflict, they push their own rational mind back down and say, well, they're an adult, or they're not going to listen to me, or there's nothing I can do about it. They, they let their own defense mechanisms and denial kind of jump in and prevent them. So so my suggestion is if you're a family member or a concerned friend or partner or whomever, is that when you start to notice things before you get to the point that you're too frustrated to deal with it in a compassionate way is, is when it's time to take action. And it's really just about you know, kind of not feeling responsible also, I think, for labeling somebody else's problem for them, other than just, you know, you, you seem a little bit different than you than than you have been in the past. There's really nothing that's going to shut somebody down faster than going at them and saying, you have a problem. You need to deal with it now. I'm just I'm worried about you. I love you. And, and yeah. I want to help. What can I do? And the truth is, is that sometimes that's going to be well-received and a lot of times it's not. And that's when we get into, you know, help for the family and the loved ones Mm -hmm. looking like, you know, Al-Anon family support groups, family programming, Mm -hmm. family workshopping, people going to their own therapy to learn about how they are part of, Mm -hmm. you know, the the disease condition as well. Mm -hmm. Could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, you, you know, what I know to be true is that the, if there's addiction in the family, the identified person is is one of all family members who is mm. also experiencing the illness, right? Because, you know, everybody's defenses have had to come into play to survive what's been going on. So everybody needs to know how to recover themselves. Mm. And, and whether that's from being you know, traumatized by the events that have happened, um, and they need some real one on one individual type work, or if that's about learning how to not be enabling or not be, you know, completely uh, on the other end of the spectrum and detached. So, It, it's something that um, we talk about a lot with families is it's you have to treat people with addiction when they're not well, when they're in active addiction, it's counterintuitive to what you would do mm. for any other loved one. Mm. So, you know, we can't and I can't fault people for for not knowing what to do. When their child says, Mom, I don't have enough money to pay the rent. Mm. Right? Of course, I'm not gonna let my child be homeless and they pay the rent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they do it one more time and two more times and three more times, and then they start to realize something's going on. But again, they're already frustrated by that point. I don't think that this stuff is, is a surprise most of the time. Yeah. You know, families watch this this grow over time. Sometimes it's a surprise, but but rarely. People start seeing this stuff when, you know, their kids are teenagers. So, you know. It Early signs. Yeah, yeah.
1: Thank you for that. Yeah. I feel like that was a really empathetic human view of mm-hmm. both experiences, both the mm-hmm. addict and the family. And I think um, for so many of us, we want to fix and say, yeah, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think that's my tendency is I see mm-hmm. someone I love uh, either hurting or making a choice that's hurting them.
0: And mm-hmm. I want to jump in and yeah. force
1: someone into therapy or force someone into recovery. And like Mackenzie said, we can't do that. Um, and I think even, even though... Simple words you shared of saying like you can show up and say I love you. I've noticed, and I I'm concerned. I think that mm-hmm. is obviously will not always be received, but that is such a good reminder of how we should approach people,
0: right? And I mean, it, it may not change anything then, but it might change it yeah. later. Hmm. You know, that person remembering. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, when Hannah came to me and told me yeah. that she was worried. She didn't shame me about it. She didn't say she was going to cut me off about it. She just, you know, wanted to be there. And and maybe then you're that person that they seek out. And I I know, you know, from my professional lens, the way that I interact with people that are, you know, seeking help is from that perspective. And even when they they relapse seven times, they're still Mm -hmm. going to get that response from me. And that's why they come back the eighth. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I'm curious about, um, you mentioned earlier that we're doing a lot of times medicating behaviors or addictive behaviors to not feel something. So Mm -hmm. how do you support someone as they take away the thing that was keeping them from feeling and then they start feeling the things that they've been avoiding
0: for a really long time? And what does that support process look like? That's a really good question. Um, When we're talking about substances specifically, people are not only feeling, sometimes they are numb. So there's two sides of a coin, right? But either way, when the feelings come back, they're going to be big, they're going to be unpredictable, and they're going to be intense. And, you know, for me, the safest way for people to manage that is in some kind of supervised setting as we said, like we've ripped away the primary coping skill that somebody has, they are not equipped to handle, you know, those big intense feelings right away. And most likely will will reach out for the medicator again, if they're not in some kind of supervised setting.
1: I have a question that's um, taking us back a while, but kind of connects full circle. But in the beginning, when I asked you how long you've been with OnSite, you spoke to your training experience. And then when you were training with Mary, how you, it kind of clicked for you, like, should I do this? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, our training, for anyone who doesn't know, we do experiential training and experiential therapy modality and a modality called psychodrama. And um, those are different than a lot of traditional therapies, like talk therapy or a lot of things people may envision therapy, um, and helps you get into your your... your body, helps you connect back to certain experiences that help you heal. And I would love to know if you could speak to how that type of therapy that we often utilize at onsite, obviously we use a full breadth of modalities, but how experiential or psychodrama or any of those modalities have informed your process of healing and how you think that helps people not just put a Band-Aid on their recovery or a Band-Aid on their addiction, but how it actually can help them heal and go back to maybe their childhood parts or some wounded parts from earlier on in their stories and and heal those things.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. For me, and again, like, I'm not, you know, the the foremost expert on experiential therapy. But in my experience, it, it's about processing things on a physical level. Mm-hmm. And the experiential therapies allow us to tap into those emotions, I believe, on a visceral physical mm-hmm. level. And um you know, if we start a piece of work with with somebody and, you know, they're able to speak their truth that they've been holding on to for 30 years, by the end of the day, someone's doing anger release work, you know, Mm, and that is a physical discharge of the feeling. And I just, you know, (laughs) they call it telly and psychodrama, but that connection between individuals, it's it's magic. I I don't quite Mm. understand it. But if, i'm sitting in front of somebody and they're they're doing a piece of work with me or with with the client um in front of them just the emotion level and the visceral connection is there mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. and it's just not there otherwise um, when someone's just doing a, a you know a normal talk therapy not that that's not helpful we need that for mm-hmm. challenging distorted thinking patterns and mm-hmm. and you know old distorted core belief systems and the rest of it but in terms of really getting it out yeah it, it's it helps in that way mm-hmm
1: I love that you also just um, alluded to the power of group work, saying watching Mm -hmm. someone else do something or watching a therapist work Mm -hmm. with a person. And that's Mm -hmm. something that's really unique about our workshops that a lot of people haven't experienced or could be kind of scary or overwhelming for people, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. is the power of doing therapeutic work in front of other people. And I Mm -hmm. think that's something that we also learn and take and borrow from the recovery process, knowing that you can't recover alone you need community mm-hmm. and accountability and so how have you seen community accountability and group why is that a good advocate for healing? Oh
0: because you know there is nothing bigger than the value of another human being sitting in front of um, of, of a human being sitting in front of somebody else and saying I understand me mm-hmm. too mm-hmm. Mm. right and from my perspective as a therapist, I'm not always, you know, the on-site model is different where we're cool with that. A lot of <laughs> therapeutics you know, the theoretical backgrounds yeah. are not. Yeah. And and that's actually frowned upon, right? So mm-hmm. the, the group, what the group does, a group member is going to, I think, get 100% more impact from another group member and another group member's feedback because they, you know, they're, they're not being paid to be there. They're just with mm-hmm. them, right? Yeah. So they believe them. Mm-hmm. And they're in it together. And, you know, the, the value of that really can far outweigh anything I have to offer a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Not that it's not great for me to be there to push the process along. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. But really feeling like you have a peer in your pain. Mm-hmm. Someone mm-hmm. who gets you and understands you from that level, and who's also at your level of healing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Who you that can look at and say, that. "Well, you know, Mackenzie's a mess too, so I'm not. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. I'm not completely <laughs> screwed here." <laughs> There's a normalizing to it, <laughs> absolutely, because you know oh. I can sit in front of somebody and say, "Well, I've done inner child work, and I've achieved this mm-hmm. and that in my in my recovery," and they say, "Well, I'm never. How can I? I, I don't know. I'm not going to get to that. That's for I you. Relate. <laughs> yeah, that's great yeah. for you. But this girl over here, she's crying more than I am. And I, I want to mm-hmm. hang out with her. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's that part. And then as far as to speak to the group experience, there is the group after the group, right? Mm-hmm. So some of the most important times happen when the clinical staff is not even around. Where, you know, at onsite, it's, it's people being out back at the fire pit or you know, in, in treatment, it's people being back at residence or going on outings or doing whatever they're doing, where they're able to really connect with people from, from, a, from a treatment standpoint, from a sober level for the first time. Hmm. And maybe mm-hmm. from the onsite standpoint, from a place of vulnerability, maybe I shared mm-hmm. something today that right. no one's ever seen me like that before. Mm-hmm. And I, they, they still like me, and they're still talking to me. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so so the vulnerability is rewarded, you know, in, in both of those instances.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. We say often, like, we're wounded in community, and so we have to heal in community.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, yeah, I never knew, as someone who's pretty guarded, and, mm. like, vulnerability is the scariest. <laughs> uh, I think I never really wanted anyone in on that healing process. But I think when I started to do that... Um, it unlocked so much more healing than I ever could have alone. And because it let yeah. people see, it taught me that I could be seen, that I was lovable, mm-hmm. that I was not too much. Like all no. the yeah. wounded insecurities that we carry around from Community from early on, whether yeah. intentional, said out loud or not. Like I have picked mm-hmm. that up somewhere from someone else, and mm-hmm. so I had to go back with people because I could tell myself I've been working on it in therapy forever. Like I'm enough, I'm lovable. Right until you experience, right. yeah. That, until you're sitting in front of someone who can say that back to you and you experience it. Um, but mm-hmm. that that wires something different in your brains. Yeah. I feel mm-hmm. like, the, like you were saying the body experience of connecting emotion to getting it out. Same with. Like mm-hmm. putting emotion in, I feel like we've connected mm-hmm. it physically, and we allow it to be true. I think for the first time,
0: mm-hmm. I can remember so vividly um, this kind of, you know, I I I did go to treatment as part of my story, um, mm-hmm. and this really kind of like old school chemical dependency treatment assignment of like write down twenty consequences of your addiction, and then it was like a super big deal because you had to read it out loud, and being, you know, just. Terrified to do it and saying these Mm. like wickedly shameful things to this group of people, and then everybody just going, All right, cool, who wants to go for a walk after group, right? You know, and it was like zero changed, you know, when all (laughs) I had experienced for. You know, my, my messy behaviors in the past was, mm. was people just, you know, really alienating, mm-hmm. you know, me on, on, you know, because they didn't want to be associated or branded, you know, themselves yeah. as being messy. So, you know, the power of that group or that community is, is really second to none, in my opinion. Mm-hmm.
2: And I think there's something so beautiful about bringing things that feel really shameful and feel bigger in the dark into mm-hmm. the light. Um, And Mm -hmm. I've seen that at OnSite and I've seen that in my own life. And I love that you brought up not just the clinical work and in that moment of like, I am going to share and bear all, Mm -hmm. but it's the after. It's the, and nothing has changed. This is still safe. I think that is what containers Mm -hmm. like a treatment experience or an OnSite experience can offer Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. to then actually put action to what we say is true of like, we know, and nothing will change. And I will show that to you and I will give you the permission to show up as your whole self. And I won't see you any differently because I think so many times we like to say that the world might not feel like onsite, but you can feel like onsite to the world. And I think Mm -hmm. that's one of the ways that I've watched onsite alumni walk into the world and offer that gift to other people uh, to say, no, let me then reflect back to you what is true um, and be a mirror to that. Um, mm-hmm. and really mm-hmm. put where our money where our mouth is because if we say, no, nothing's going to change because I think sometimes um, we even do that with people when we approach them of like, hey, I think something's going on and, and I don't see you any differently, but do we always mean that?
0: One of the brilliant things about Onsite is the container Yeah, and is the safety. I've had the privilege of interning with some brilliant women you know, one of us is no longer with us, Barbara Teal, And, you know, being with these women as they're leading these workshops of really vulnerable, scared people, and the safety is there. Day one,
1: mm-hmm. you
0: know, for some of it. And it's, it's incredibly powerful. And it's not just about what's happening in that room. It's the whole experience overall, Mm -hmm. you know, from the second that people get there. Yeah. And the little details that go into everything and the general warmth of the staff and, you know, everybody there who is going to show up for the clients. It's incredibly safe place to be as a client, in my opinion, anyway. And I've gone through the programming as a participant. So I can say that from both sides of the chair. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That's a good reminder that um, healing is such a holistic experience. That yeah. mm-hmm. yes, therapy is a really helpful tool. Mm-hmm. Going to a twelve step program is a really helpful tool, and we mm-hmm. need those things. But also, community mm-hmm. is really helpful, and what we yeah. put in bodies is helpful. Like there are so many things that are going to help us heal, and it's about widening our toolkit of what is going to help us support us on our on our journey of healing and hope um, and mm-hmm. recovery for everyone. And I think mm-hmm. that's what we try to model it on site and try to produce for you. So then you can kind of learn those tools for yourself. And hopefully, like, mm-hmm. like says, go be that to your own world to your own community and, and see the ripple effects of that down the line.
2: Mandy, mm-hmm. you have been um, just so graceful and had so much compassion in everything that you've shared today. And so I would love if you could just kind of continue from that spirit as you've been saying, of, what do you wish people knew about addiction, whether it is someone in my life is is struggling with addiction or I myself am, what do you wish that people knew and what message would you want them to walk away with from our conversation today?
0: Mm-hmm. That's a really neat question, Mackenzie. I think something that most addicts would agree with is, you know, I sure, we have some idea and we have some education, you know, when we are growing up about, in my day it was the D.A.R.E. program, D.A.R.E. to keep kids off drugs, right? But like then adolescence hits and, you know, experimentation and invincibility kick in. But the truth is, is that not one person that I've ever sat with um, or in my own experience planned on becoming a full-blown addict, alcoholic. It doesn't work that way. So for somebody that has the sun and the moon and the stars line up, you know, in the proper formation, they're going to age out of that stuff and they're going to move on with their lives and, and go about their business. For somebody whose stars and moon and sun are misaligned, they, they are not. So that's one thing. And and I think another thing is that, yeah, I think there, there probably are outliers to this. But for the most part, addicts and alcoholics are really a group of sensitive people mm-hmm. who didn't necessarily have the best coping skills to handle the world.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And, you know, they feel things deeply and... Um, They have a lot of heart and, you know, sometimes needed a little bit of help to to deal with the ups and downs, disappointments and traumas of of living. Most Mm -hmm. addicts and alcoholics that I work with, they want to be better. They want to change. They are basically not the same people, clean and sober, as they were when they had the chemicals in their system. Mm -hmm.
2: Thank you for sharing that. I just have been so grateful for the way that you have just offered so much compassion and empathy and created so much understanding around a topic that I think a lot of us maybe have a really narrow view of. And so Mm -hmm. thank you. Oh, you're welcome. One of the questions that we love to ask, and I love to ask this of therapists, because I think it does show that holistic side of what we need and how we can build a holistic, healthy lifestyle, but what is one practice that you partake in in your life that helps keep you grounded and centered?
0: This is not a traditional thing.
2: Um, That's great. I love that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is not a traditional thing. It's going to be like being with people that I love and, and animals Yeah, and my pets it's not, you know, obviously there there's prayer and, and there are spiritual practices and, you know, living by a set of principles and, you know, really big bubble baths and <laughs> um, as much, you know, water time as I can get, um, whether that's a beach or, or wherever. But, you know, when I come in the door and, you know, I've most of the time got an excited husband <laughs> and all of the time an excited dog, you know, yeah. what, what is a better grounding feature than that? That's what's really important, right?
1: Yes. I love, I love that. I think, mm-hmm. yeah, animals are such a good uh, power and reflection of healing and can be, um, I joke with my dog all the time, anytime that I'm crying right. or like ha- being anxious, I always kind of thing I yell at him is co-regulate, co-regulate. <laughs> um,
0: and he hasn't quite
1: learned that one yet, but, but they do. But he knows your tone of voice. Yes. He knows <laughs> something's wrong and can mirror back to me the maybe peace I need or mm-hmm. um, love mm-hmm. that I am not giving to myself. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, it's, it may feel like silly or not traditional, but I do think, yeah, they're, they're a part of our lives who help us stay grounded and connected um, even to our own. Mm-hmm humanity like just a being they're just a being and we're just a being and we get to learn from each other so i love absolutely absolutely.
2: that's a great answer for sure Mm -hmm. also that is that was mary b's answer when we asked her originally she's like my little puppy sitting on my lap so (laughs) precious because it's i think we have this this idea that like therapists are going to say oh well it's my like meditation every morning and i just love to dispel that that It is sometimes the smallest, most human things that keep us grounded and help us remind us of who we are. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely.
1: Well, great, Hannah. Is there anything else that you wanted to ask before you wrap up? No, Amanda. I'm just so grateful A, to get to know mm-hmm. you. It's so fun to yeah. just connect with you. It's always really Mackenzie and Mackenzie gets to have a lot of these conversations, but we're just semi removed from the workshop experience sometimes. And so it's really, or intensive experience. So it's really Mm -hmm. powerful for us just to get to know um, we both have been through a Living Centered program. And so just to know the people that are leading our clients through something, it just, I have so much trust and hope in everyone that walks our doors because of people like you. So we're just so grateful. Um, and it's, I, I'm so grateful to learn more about addiction and recovery and yeah. um, helping normalize that conversation. And there, I know there's so many people that uh, onsite serves that come from recovery um, and this is a next step or maybe Mm -hmm. aren't aware of a need for recovery and this is a catalyst. And so it's just so helpful to, to talk about it and normalize it. And so I'm really grateful.
0: Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
1: When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If Onsite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, Our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.